Welcome to the Farm Bits Podcast, product of Nebraska Extension Digital Agriculture. I'm Jackson Stansel. And I'm Samantha Teton. And we come to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews and panels with experts, producers, and innovators from all sectors of digital technology, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Hello, FarmBits followers, and thank you for joining another episode of the FarmBits podcast. This episode continues on our nitrogen management series, particularly within the topic area of responsive nitrogen management. Yeah, our guest for this episode is Dr. Josh McGrath, who is an associate extension professor in soil management at the University of Kentucky. Josh is a soil fertility specialist with significant experience in nitrogen management in both Kentucky and mid-Atlantic region. Some of his research and extension efforts have involved exploring proximal sensors for informing in-season nitrogen management and small grains and corn production. So in this episode, we will get into what proximal sensors are, how they are used, and what the results have been from integrating these sensors in commercial farming operations. This episode reveals the realities and the potential of proximal sensing solutions for nitrogen management. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Josh McGrath. So Maryland is is very diverse and part of the state's not even in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. The western two counties out in the Appalachian Mountains, they're mountainous, very little row crop. Um, and outside the Chesapeake Bay watershed. And then you go east, and and then you're on the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay around Annapolis, D.C., Baltimore, and you get into that uh, western shore coastal plain. And so those are historically um, eroded soils in southern Maryland. They're coastal plain, but with rolling topography, um, somewhat depleted soils because of historic, uh, and when we say historic, like, you know, 200 years of tobacco production. Mm -hmm. And then you go keep traveling east across the bay and you're on the Delmarva Peninsula. Mm-hmm. So that's all of Delaware where I grew up, uh, the eastern counties of Maryland and two counties of Virginia. And so you get further south on that, that coastal plain and it's just beach sand yeah. and it's hmm. flat. Uh, we, had a, we had a field site we were measuring runoff at, a ditch that we had surveyed and there was like one inch of drop in two miles. Wow. I mean, it's flat. It's like a pool table, right? Yeah. It's flat <laughs> and, and you're like three feet above sea level. Oh. So you get saltwater tidal flow back up into some of those ditches, you yeah, know? And yeah. so uh, it's, it's an interesting place to farm. So you've got, first of all, you got diversity. Mm-hmm. And that diversity leads to very different perceptions of the farmers. And this is an important part when we talk about doing precision ag and variable rate. Um, you know, where I grew up on the Delmarva, everybody had been split applying nitrogen on corn, you know, some up in starter, two by two liquid fertilizer or, or broadcast nitrogen up front, you know, maybe 50 to 100 pounds up front. And then you're coming in with another 100 pounds, uh, just drag hoses on a big 100 foot boom sprayer, high clearance sprayer, drag hose, um, you know, just dribbling UAN down the center of the row at, at that V4 to V6 kind of up sure. to V10 stage. Um, that's uh, across the board. That's how everyone does nitrogen or they're putting it through a pivot, right. lots of irrigation. Mm-hmm. You go west of the bay. And when I started in 2006, one of the first extension talks I ever gave was in Baltimore County. So just north of Baltimore City. And it was mind blowing to me. I didn't know there were folks that didn't split apply nitrogen. And no one, 100% of the people just put out all pre-plant, which is mm-hmm. what, as you move to the Midwest, people, you know, yeah. but I'm just a young guy. I knew what I knew, right? Mm-hmm. I right. knew farming on Delmarva. And so um, it was wild to learn about people that, what, you're not split apply nitrogen? Because in nitrogen management, like forget precision act. <laughs> The, the, the big knob, the huge lever, like if 
the, the older folks, you, you all might not remember course knob and fine knob on tuning the radio, <laughs> sure. but, but the older folks will remember the course knob, the big knob is timing. Like if you're not split and applying, forget about precision. Ag, you're wasting right. your time. There's right. no point in doing variable rate nitrogen if you're not split applying because you're missing, you're, you're working around the edges. You're worrying about the little tiny details and you're missing the mark by a hundred miles. So, right. so forget about everything, split apply, and then worry yeah. about getting into precision. We're kind of starting to shift this discussion into the precision ag space. And we've talked about how, you know, people that are out on the Del Marva are already split applying nitrogen to kind of take care of some of that efficiency. But with some of these challenges to, to try to get to that NUE that we talked about, you have to kind of take that next step, whether that's not application through the pivot or whether that's going to a precision ag sort of application where you vary the rate across the field. And so what are some of the tools, the precision ag tools that farmers are employing in that particular part of the country and even in Kentucky right now to kind of meet some of these challenges uh, head on with nitrogen management? Yeah. So, I mean, I think most of the nitrogen management, it's funny, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of start talking about both nitrogen and phosphorus as a means of kind of comparison. Mm -hmm. So when we look at some of the survey work somewhere between 40 to 60% of the phosphorus supplied to row crops in North America is applied variable rate. And, and probably most of that, if I were guessing, is, is based on some sort of grid sample. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're just taking our recommendations that existed before or whoever's recommendations, and they're basically saying, okay, we were applying this phosphorus rate to this range of soil tests, and now we have this gridded out, um, uh, interpolated soil map from this grid soil sample. Now let's let's set aside whether or not that's right. That interpolation is right. Let's assume we're gonna let's that say right. that you did yeah. a grid sample. You took a sample every every sixty feet, a tenth of an acre. So tenth acre grid sample. So we know it's right. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 then I apply that university or private consultants lookup table to that grid sample, basically. Mm -hmm. And so we've been researching this now for six years here in Kentucky, and we found out that that's absolutely wrong. The recommendations have, first of all, extra fat built in. And second, they were built on trying to find the average rate phosphorus rate. And so we've got to talk about responsiveness versus total need. And so on average, if I take and, and take all those grid samples and average them and apply a flat rate to the whole field, if that average soil test says I need phosphorus, we typically find that that that's right, that it needs phosphorus. And I'll have an economic response across the whole field. Mm -hmm. But what we started doing was doing research where we took really small plots, shotgunned across the entire field. And what we did with those plots was we split them. So they're, they're 20 foot wide, but we have 10 foot and 10 foot. We're running a four row corn planter. And we're putting the phosphorus down in the two by two. And so we'll have a little 40 foot long stretch with phosphorus and right next to it, there's no phosphorus. So they're paired up. Mm -hmm. So in that 20 foot by 40 foot space, I know how many bushels I got by adding phosphorus because I have a zero phosphorus and a phosphorus added. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What we found is that 50% of the time in single digit phosphorus, we use malic three, but you know, really low soil test phosphorus, 50% of the time, I don't need any phosphorus. I can achieve max yield with no phosphorus, even though my soil test is extremely low. In that same field, when I take all those plots and add them up, on average, I needed phosphorus. And people go, that, that makes no sense. But when I respond, I get enough bushels to pay for the plots that didn't respond. Hmm. But it is random which plots respond when I go to the subfield level. So on average, that field is low soil test and half of it needs phosphorus, but it's all low. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the soil test is. I we tried everything. We thought maybe it's the organic matter. Maybe we, you know, maybe there's bugs living over here that aren't living <laughs> over there, and that has something to do with it. I think it's root length with phosphorus. So I'm, I'm gonna get off track for a second. I, I think it's root length with phosphorus, and this plays into the nitrogen story as well. But we need something else besides soil tests if we're gonna do precision ag. Mm-hmm. And so this is phosphorus, right? And so that so now we're starting to talk about this concept of response. Now in nitrogen, when I started at Maryland, we have this yield-based approach. So we thought about the same kind of thing. Like I've got a yield map and I've got a recommendation that says one pound per bushel. Mm -hmm. So let's take our yield maps and multiply it by one. And that's the nitrogen rate for each of those zones. Let's let's zone it out. Let's let's do it coarse. Let's say low, medium, and high yield. Mm -hmm. And and let's it didn't work. It failed. 100% of the time it failed. So using our yield map and using our yield-based recommendation, it failed. It was the wrong rate. Mm -hmm. When I used the yield-based recommendation and apply it to the whole field, it worked. That was the right rate for the whole field. And we can do strip trials with different rates and we can demonstrate that. that, That across the whole field, it's the same thing as with the phosphorus, that you have this kind of averaging effect and our recommendations are really accurate. So on average, they work. But if we try and shrink the amount of area we apply that recommendation to, they fail because they're not precise enough. And this gets back to the foundational work that underlies sensor technology like GreenSeeker. So GreenSeeker algorithms are based on this concept of response and yield potential, and they're independent. And so that's hard for people to think about, but they can move in different directions. You can have a low-yielding field that's really responsive, where you can have a high yielding field that's really responsive or vice versa. Sure. And so that algorithm is a traditional Oklahoma state model. Um, and what it says is at every second on the go sensor management, at every second that green seeker is sensing the corn, measuring NDVI. And in the field, we have a strip that before planting, we put extra nitrogen on and another strip that we put no nitrogen on. Mm-hmm. And, um, so the ratio of those two, let's say the NDVI of that no nitrogen strip, I'm going in a side dress at V6, and let's say it measures, um, you know, 0.4, and the one with high nitrogen uh, measures uh, 0.6, right? And so um, the ratio of those two, 0.6 divided by 0.4, uh, I should have used easier math, is what? Uh, I think it's 1.5. 1. 1. Yeah. Yeah. All right, there we go. That's pretty good for a soil scientist to do that on the spot. <laughs> so, so it's 1.5, right, is the response index because that was pre-plant nitrogen. It says this is how much it responded on average. And then as you go through at V6 and you've got your sensors on, it's taking a reading every second of NDVI. And it's predicting two things. The yield if I fertilize and the yield if I don't fertilize. Mm-hmm. It's making that prediction. It's taking the difference. So let's say it predicts 200 bushels and it predicts 150 as the unfertilized yield. Mm-hmm. It says there's a 50 bushel difference. And then it multiplies it by a factor. How much nitrogen do I need for 50 bushels? Sure. And that's how it varies the rate. And so as you go across, it's making this decision every second of what's my yield if I fertilize? What's the yield if I don't? What's that difference? And so what you end up with is the really low NDVI. So that's poor, small, Lots of soil showing through. The yield prediction is really low, mm. and the yield without is really low. And so the difference is pretty small. So the nitrogen rate is small, sure. right? Because it's a mass, actual mass of grain times mass of nitrogen. So even if it's 
the yield's going to double. It's still a smaller mass than in the higher yielding area. So just mathematically, right. it's a low nitrogen rate. Then I get up into pretty good ground. And I've got a pretty good yield potential. It's pretty much almost the maximum yield potential. Mm-hmm. There, that, that 50% responsiveness, now I'm talking about 200 bushels versus 100 bushels instead of uh, you know, 70 bushels versus 35 bushels, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden I've got a bigger number to multiply times my nitrogen factor and my nitrogen rate is going to be really high in this good ground that's just below the maximum. And then in the maximum, we say, well, yield plateaus. At some point, I can't get past this maximum yield. And for this field, maybe it's 350, maybe it's right. 400. 20% of the ground in this field yields 400. And this field is a 200 bushel field on average. And so I put in that max cap number. So now my yield predicted with nitrogen caps out at that, whatever I say is the maximum realistic yield. And, and when I hit that maximum realistic yield, because that's a fixed number, but the yield without nitrogen keeps going up, my nitrogen recommendation starts going down because what's happening is I'm getting into ground that if I don't fertilize, will yield as well as if fertilized. Right. It's, yep. I'm going to grow 350 bushel corn here with or without nitrogen because it's just good ground. And what we found was this algorithm worked. Like, yeah, it failed sometimes. Mostly where it was tough to use was when there was a lots of residual nitrogen. So we have a ton of chickens on the Delmarva Peninsula, mm-hmm. right? So we got yeah. historic year after year poultry application, poultry litter application. So you build up this big nitrogen, resi- like residual sure. pool. Yeah. And so you're not responsive. And so it's saying you don't need any nitrogen at side dress. And it's usually right, but right. that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's that's a problem. And so there it says, look, you just need. And then there's some other fields every once in a while, the weather or something, because it's predicting yield. I mean, you're in there at V6. And you don't know what the weather's going to do for the rest of the season. So if the rain turns off, yeah, it's going to fall on its face. But guess what? Traditional management's going to fall on its face if it stops raining after V6 too. Right? That's We're right. all screwed. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so um, it worked really well. And so on average, Virginia Tech reported that they expected a 20% reduction in nitrogen use. And same yield, statistically the same yielding corn. And what we found was about a 25% on average across our field sites reduction in nitrogen use mm-hmm. and the same yield. So now all of a sudden, I mean, it's paying for itself really quickly. If you're cutting your right. total nitrogen bill by 25% every year, right? It's, it, it starts to pay for itself. I mean, and so that I only worked with the Green Seeker sensor, and there's two other sensors on the market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Green Seeker, specifically because of Oklahoma State's involvement in its development, um, it's open for algorithms that are local that can work not as a lookup table, but as actual an equation, the way it's, it's coded in there, it's going to read NDVI. The user puts in these, these fixed kind of factors of, of maximum realistic yield, how much nitrogen have I already applied to date? And it's, and then the university can provide, there's some coefficients in this empirical model that predicts yield. And those have to be local. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the other sensor packages don't allow that. So I haven't worked with. And they use a whole different philosophy. They use a sufficiency. Yep. So in Nebraska, yep. kind of where <laughs> optics came from, right? Yep. Right, exactly. Right. So that was Kyle Holland's sensor. And mm-hmm. it's based on this sufficiency approach, which is like using a sensor to do traditional nitrogen management. I won't say it doesn't work, but I don't think it moves us in the right direction of more mechanistic nitrogen management. It's basically just another tool to do traditional nitrogen management, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
I'd be happy to try it out and test it and run them head to head. But, you know, we just, there's only so much we can do. Mm-hmm. So we've right. always focused on this mechanistic approach. You mentioned in some of the results of these trials that you looked at yield and nitrogen applied and what you're saving with that. What environmental measurements are you taking as well to make sure that you are actually reducing these losses that the whole objective of this research is for? Yeah, I mean, so you hit the nail on the head and and uh, I kind of have to whisper this. Um, <laughs> when we were working in Maryland, the Maryland Grain Producers Utilization Board, so that's like the corn, wheat, checkoff, mm-hmm. grain checkoff. Um, they were our biggest supporters. So they really invested heavily in all this research. And now here in Kentucky, the Corn Board, Kentucky Corn Growers Association, the Illinois um, Fertilizer Checkoff. So it's really farmers paying for this research. Right. And, and so I always kind of wondered out loud, and, and some of the farmers that were friends of mine on the, on the Grain Board back in Maryland said, don't wander that too, uh, too, too much out loud. <laughs> because, you know, you think about Green Seeker, and it's like, it's varying the rate, um, applying what you need where you need it. But there are spots in a field where we need more nitrogen because it's leaky. Mm-hmm. Right. And loss may be proportional to rate apply. I don't know. Right. right. And like, so most of my transport work was all in phosphorus. I've done some nitrogen leaching and some stuff in my career, but most of my work was in phosphorus transport. But if we think about nitrogen loss, I might need more nitrogen right here in this spot. And so Green Seeker doubles the rate right here because it's, basically a hole in the ground and all that nitrogen is going straight to the groundwater. Sure. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe it's that wet spot in the field where it's all denitrifying. Right. right. And that could be a problem. <laughs> so I may be cutting my total nitrogen use 20% and that has environmental benefit because just manufacturing transport of nitrogen is, um, you know, an energy intensive process. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. And so anything we can do to reduce energy uses has environmental benefit. So if I'm cutting my nitrogen rate 20% right off the top, I've had environmental benefit for air quality mm-hmm. and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, but if I look at water quality, I don't know. And, and, and I guess I was always focused on the agronomics. Can I get the same yield and use 20% less nitrogen? And let's hope at the end of the day, the underlying cause of the Chesapeake Bay issues is nutrient surpluses. In other words, I'm applying more than skinning the crop. And we know that's right. an issue with nitrogen. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's hope that we're doing the right thing by it can't be that much worse than applying 20% sure. more nitrogen than I need. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. That, like on average, we did a bunch of nutrient balance studies on the Delmarva Peninsula. And on average, uh, we're applying 30 to 40 pounds per acre more nitrogen than we're removing with the crop on the Delmarva Peninsula under yeah. best case scenario following university recommendations. So that's if everyone's following the law and doing the very best job we think we can, because nitrogen is so leaky, we've got to over-apply 30 to 40 pounds per acre. Right. And that's that was at the end. We did we did an evaluation of nutrient balances starting in 1998, going to 2008. Over that 10-year period, we were trying to figure out, okay, the law came into effect in 99. How much change occurred in this 10-year period? And we reduced nutrient nitrogen surpluses. Oh, I forget what it was. I was 60, 70 percent. Mm-hmm. So, so we started out at like 70 pounds surplus and got to like 30 pounds surplus. So we sure. did really good. So we're yeah. doing way better. And then if I add green seeker on, I'm going to get rid of that 30 pound surplus. Yeah. Hell, I'm going to get rid of more than that. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And so now my, now I'm in this I'm in balance and maybe then we need to start thinking about environmental. So now we need to start thinking about conservation practices and nutrient loss in a site specific way. 
Because mm. almost all the way we look at nutrient loss is using models that are edge of field. They're right. not site specific. So now instead of precision ag, we need to think about precision environmental management. And that's a whole new realm. And that's, so just recently, I'd say in the last year or two, I've been talking to a lot of other scientists around the country at USDA, ARS, and some other universities. And so like, I'm working with Amir Sajapur at Southern Illinois University on this study. And so starting this year, we're going to be looking at denitrification with variable rate nitrogen from a sensor-based algorithm to say, it, you know, uh, again, it's not necessarily looking at, at leaching, but we're going to be looking at denitrification and nitrogen loss and some of these environmental indicators. And, and we're moving in that direction of, okay, now we understand the agronomics, not to say that anyone's using green seed. That's a separate conversation. We'll <laughs> we can get to that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but if they were all using it, mm-hmm. are we cutting nitrogen usage 20% but increasing nitrate leaching? Because nitrate leaching all comes from this one spot in the field and the rest of the field doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so I'm cutting all this nitrogen all over the field, but I'm pouring it into the one spot where it acts, the one hot spot where I shouldn't be pouring it on. Does Green Seeker pour it on there? So that's the next step. Is Green Seeker good or bad for the environment? My hypothesis is it's good. I think I think there's a better chance it's good than bad. Right. But we don't know yet. Sure. I mean, as scientists, we kind of have to be completely unemotional about this. I mean, like the person Josh McGrath wants this to work out, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I want to have a win-win. I want to see farmers have a lower fertilizer bill bill and the same or higher grain yield. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's my personal interest. But my personal personal interest should have no bearing on how I conduct research. And at the end of the day, when I left Maryland, one of the farmers on the grain board, I told him I was leaving Maryland. He said, Josh, I never wanted to hear what you had to say, but I always had to hear what you had to say. Hmm. And I guess I hope if there's any young scientists out there listening, that that's, I hope that I've lived up to that uh, kind of expectation he had of me. And I, I think that's what we need to do is just tell him the truth, right? Right. And they can deal with the consequences. Maybe there's a law passed that says they can't apply nitrogen and they lose their farm, right? But at the end of the day, the first thing we need is the truth. Sure. And then the politics is separate. Like politics shouldn't always follow science. We think it should, but there are other human factors and economic factors. All these things are real reasons. Like yeah. economics is a real reason not to do variable rate <laughs> nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, crapping up the Chesapeake Bay is a real reason not to have the best nitrogen management practice. Like if the very best nitrogen management practice is bad for water quality, then maybe we can't have the best nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Cost benefit. Trade-offs. Right. And so yeah. there are these other factors that society has to weigh in, but I'm, I'm a soil fertility guy. Like I can't have any emotional connection to my, my research. <laughs> right. You know, and, and like my, my wife will tell you that that's my problem is like, I, I'm incapable of emotional connection. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, but but it works it's, out well. It's the engineer the in you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But it works out well for the job we've chosen, right? And like, <laughs> so we just need that data. Like, we need to know. So, so you mentioned in there, you said that nobody's really using the Green Seeker, and so it's my understanding that a lot of these trials you did out there, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay region, were with farmers, and you may have you know one or two that are still using them. Can you talk about kind of the farmer's response to using the system, what the logistics were, what their challenges were, and just kind of go into that that side of things as well. Yeah, and this is a conversation that we just keep having and we haven't had. We, we need someone besides the engineers and soil scientists in this, in this discussion. And I think it's, you know, we need that psychiatrist or psychologist <laughs> or social scientist 
to understand human behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And and maybe it's the software, right? Like the software designer and the interface. Like that's the missing component to this. But generally, when we look at the numbers, um, we have a bulletproof way to do nitrogen management in the yield prediction and yield response equation of green seed. This, the body of scientific literature says this is this is correct in the right way agronomically to, to, to vary nitrogen in space and time from year to year and across the field in a given year. Use the sensor. It is right. And zero percent adoption. Nitrogen, we know how to do it. No one's doing it. In Maryland, as I was leaving, and part of this, I think, you know, not that I'm the end all be all, but you kind of got to have someone driving these things. And we were driving it at the university and, and no one has kind of really filled in with that since we left. Um, but we, we had a program with a couple of different um, nonprofits. And, and, and the one thing I can say is the policy is, is pretty onerous in Maryland on farmers and, and in the Chesapeake Bay region as a whole, but specifically in Maryland, but in Maryland, they were willing to pay like, they pay a lot for cover crops. As a result, 80% of all acres have cover crops. Wow. You can make more off of your, I mean, so everyone has a rye, well, wheat cover crop. So you're allowed to pay. That's the other interesting thing. So folks choose wheat over rye and get paid a whole lot more to plant rye, but they, they'd rather have a wheat cover crop. So they'll take a lower <laughs> payment. But that payment is going to cover the cost of putting that in. Um, and so they do it. So we have 80% acreage coverage or better probably at this point, but it was 80% mm -hmm. of all the row crop acres has got a cover crop every winter. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd be surprised if it's 1% anywhere else in the United States. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be shocked mm -hmm. if right. you told me that 5% of Nebraska had a cover crop in the winter. So they're willing to pay. So there was cost share programs that bought a bunch of green seekers and, and paid for some third party support. So anyway, there was there was a bunch of farmers that got green seekers through some of these cost share and grant programs. And I don't have a good handle on all of them of what happened to them. I know some of the farmers that still use them because I they still call me every year and send me all their data and I look at it for them. They're still putting in field length flat rate strips to compare to that green seeker, mm -hmm. which is smart, right? Like because it's yeah. still a new technology and you still kind of need to dial in some of your settings. Right. And, and when they send that to me, it's still looking good. It's still working out. But my understanding is that almost all of those green seeker systems have been pulled off the rigs and put on the shelf in the shop since they don't have the support. Interesting. So I don't normally talk about companies, but there's no way to talk about this without talking about companies. And there has been no support of this technology. Now, there might be product support from an equipment standpoint, but this technology, like, I don't care whether you use a a Holland scientific sensor, a Topcon sensor, a sensor mounted on a drone or a green seek. Mm -hmm. Right. The equation is the equation. I'm taking NDVI and I'm predicting yield with and without nitrogen. That algorithm is universal yep. if I have comparable NDVIs. And so it's an agronomic support that's necessary. And if we look at agronomists outside of an independent agronomic consultant who's selling nothing except for advice, which is rare, particularly on the east coast mm -hmm. um there's no way to price in green seeker right because that farmer if he's buying fertilizer from you expects a rate recommendation as part of the package and so do you charge per acre for using green seeker when you don't know how much nitrogen you're going to use till the end of the day so you say you pull up to, to farmer john's farm and you say okay i'm going to charge you five dollars an acre to use green seeker Right. And first of all, and, and that you're assuming the farmer believes you they're not going to lose yield. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to charge you $5 an acre for green seeding. Okay. How much, how much my fertilizer going to cost me? Well, I'll tell you when I'm done. <laughs> Maybe more or less than what you expect. Right. So it doesn't yeah. work. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why this doesn't work. It doesn't work in that. So first of all, the farmer has to be doing all their own agronomy. Mm-hmm. And they got to put those sensors on and they got to be pre-contracting their UAN. Mm-hmm. So now they're at that position. Now they got to trust this black box. Mm-hmm. They've got to understand the nuts and bolts of, I'm going to drive across the field and this magic sensor is going to change the rate every second. And it's not like on the fly, I'm going to be grabbing the knob and turning it up or turning it down if I don't like what I see. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, right. it's like hopping in, you know, a Camaro, passing the, smashing the accelerator to the ground and letting go of the steering wheel. <laughs> you got no, you're, you're along for the ride. You got no steering wheel. You mm-hmm. just take the wheel at that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so psychologically, this is an impossible technology to adopt without some support from the company that's selling it. And mm-hmm. there is none. Hmm. right i mean they yeah. might support the software and they might support the hardware but they don't support the agronomy mm-hmm. right so you got to have the university i think the university extension has to find a new role for itself as that independent support if we think this is the right way forward right mm-hmm. but that's a big ask i mean you think about what county agents are doing already across the state and everything they've already got to do and now they got to be on call as tech support it's almost a new role a whole i mean new role how do we do created. that yeah how do we fund that? How yep. do we justify that? Mm-hmm. Um, so this gets to something I'm excited about that's coming out. Is so farmers, it's real on the go nitrogen management is right. There's no question agronomically it's right, but it is impossible psychologically. And, and I've come around to this. You know, I've been at this for a while, and a lot of us sit around and talk about this. I think it's going to be impossible for most farmers to job. One in a hundred can do it. And there's still farmers with green seekers doing the thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the majority of them psychologically won't be able to do this. And so there's this, there's been some papers that have come out of Oklahoma State and Brian Arnell. I don't know if you all have talked to him yet. I haven't talked to him yet, but I know, I know who he is, yeah. Y- y'all might want to talk to him about this. So they're saying, okay, well, I can take a satellite imagery, pretty high resolution NDVI. And that NDVI, like if it says this spot is 0.3, Green Seeker is going to say it's something else. But if you go out in that field close after that satellite image is captured with a handheld Green Seeker and boom, 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 get some points, I can come up with an equation that converts satellite basis to sensor basis and DVI. Mm-hmm. So now I take that satellite point three and I run it through the equation and it comes out Green Seeker point four is what Green Seeker would read there. It's not perfect, but now we're, we're getting to that gray area where Green Seeker on the go is perfect. Flat rate is what we do today. Let's get it something in between because the farmer kind of wants to look at that recommendation ahead of time. That's right. You know, chew on it a little bit, turn the paper around sideways, turn it back upright, crumple (laughs) Mm -hmm. it up, fold it, unfold it. And then at the end of the day, they'll do what's on that paper. That's how we treat fertilizer recommendations. Mm -hmm. And so I could take this satellite imagery, convert it over to green seeker basis and apply the exact same algorithm to it and load it up as a prescription. So now it's not on the go. I know this is my prescription and I'm going to apply a thousand gallons today. Mm-hmm. Whereas with green seeker on the go, I may apply 500 gallons. I may apply 2000 gallons. Right. Yep. And so I, I think that we're going to have to meet people where they are. And I think sometimes in research, we don't do that. And we need to understand these psychological issues. It's not all soils and crops and rain and atmosphere, there's people in this equation. And I think this approach coming out of Brian's program 
meets people where they are. So I'm interested in seeing how it goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, farming is definitely the ultimate risk. But when it comes to technology, we farmers don't want to take that risk on that on the goat sensing. So well, and and look, far we kind of kid ourselves as farmers, if I can put on my farmer hat for a second, that we're agronomists and soil scientists and plant scientists, and we're not. We're, we're like logistics is the business of a farmer. Mm-hmm. How do I get this many? How do I get this combine there? How many bags of seed or or bins of seed? How do I move this person there? How do I get my sprayer there? That's that's ninety percent. What am I contracting my grain at? What did I buy my first? Did I buy two hundred dollar UAN last year, or am I paying five hundred dollar UAN right now? Right, like that's it's it's a logistics business. So then to ask them to pick up this green seed. And, and figure this out on their own, I think it's too big of an ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have told you a totally different story. I would have been like, <laughs> damn it, everyone should be doing this. There's no reason not to. No, but I mean, you know, we evolve. I mean, I've spent a lot of time, all the research we do is on farm. We don't do anything on the university. So there's a farmer involved in every set of plots I do. That's, awesome. you know, so I spend as many hours in the combine as I do talking to farmers. And so over this time, you, you just kind of feel your way out and kind of feel out these other factors. And you say, oh, we got to come up with something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just defended my thesis on a lot of the things that you have covered. So you're definitely. <laughs> Did you agree with me or disagree? I very much agreed with you on <laughs> basically all of it. I have a bajillion things to add, but um, I think where we need to go, especially to be curious of your time. So where do you see us in the next five years? Where do you think we should go to overcome some of these challenges? Well, in the next five years, I was hoping you would take a longer time period so I could just say it's your job. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Stretch that a little bit further. I won't be involved in this question anymore. (laughs) Um, I think there's, there's multiple things. Like there's a kind of an engineering, if a bridge fails, it's never because of one thing. There's always like 20 things. And mm-hmm. the same thing with the success, right? Right. So I think there's a lot of different. So I think we need to reach out. And we need to get some, some people that understand the human. How do humans interact with data? So set aside green seeker and grid sampling, all that. I mean, farming precision ag is about, it's not even precision ag anymore. It's about, you know, data-based agriculture. We have at our disposal just, you know, gigs and gigs and gigs of data, mm-hmm. you know, second base weather data. There's going to be by plant sensors that dissolve in the field that you, that are inserted when the corn is planted. I mean, back in the early nineties, um, the original Oklahoma state work figured out that the right space to be varying nitrogen was on a, on a plant by plant or two plant basis. Every seven inches, we should be changing the nitrogen rate. And, and from a machinery standpoint, that's actually really easy mm-hmm. to get to. Like if we think about processing power, uh, data storage, and, and machine control, we could probably do that today if it wasn't a factor of cost. The only thing left is for the price of those things to come down. And we could be putting flocks of robots out mm-hmm. that you know have micro pumps that are shooting nitrogen at every plant. This is easy. It's the agronomy. Mm-hmm. And it's how the people intersect with that data. And so I think we've got to we've got to start training scientists that are experts on how humans interact with data, interpret data, and use data. And that's different than anything I've ever faced in my career. 
I mean, there's whole disciplines that are about how we internalize data in our heads and how we how we plug into that data, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sci-fi movies like The Matrix got into this, like how, how do we interact with, the, with that, that data? And, and so I think, if, I think we're on the precipice of that. I think that's where things are moving is, is, is database farming mm-hmm. and understanding how people interact with the information and designing tools that facilitate that interaction. So can you design, all right, we get a, we get a halfway you know, satellite-based prescription map versus reactive approach to get people's toes into Green Seeker, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But five years from now, we should still be trying to go to on-the-go. Every plant gets an individual rate, nitrogen management, because we know that's better. And so that's going to require designing that technology to interface with the person in a specific way that they are comfortable with it. Right. And I don't know what that is. And I will never know. I'm not smart enough to figure that out, but we need to get some smarter people involved in this, you know, like you all <laughs> to figure that out. <laughs> I mean, that's, and so I, I think, I think that that's where we're going to go is, is that the interaction with the data is going to become very important. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a totally different challenge. It's, it's basically the first generation, right? That's ever having to deal with this, fact that we have so much information all the time what do you do with it how do you make sense of it and how does that challenge your your preconceived notions um Mm -hmm. so i don't know it it is going to be a big challenge and i think it's it's going to require as you mentioned an intersection of engineering and agronomy and and the social sciences because that's really where it it sits is kind of in that nexus so i guess josh to, to kind of finish this up what is one piece of advice i mean we've been talking about nitrogen management we've talked about phosphorus we've talked about all these different concepts that I think people probably don't think about at such a detailed level, right? And we've talked about these sensors that nobody necessarily is adopting <laughs> right now. What is your piece of advice for somebody who's wanting to improve their precision nitrogen management? Uh, yeah. So I think at the end of the day, where this whole conversation has taken me is the sensors attempted to, to, to look at the mechanisms of nitrogen requirement. So if we go backwards in time in 1965, um, George Stanford was working in Beltsville in Maryland at the ARS mm-hmm. and he came up with Stanford's equation, right? And that's yep. the basis of how Green Seeker works. And it basically said, there's, there are mechanisms to nitrogen requirement, like how much yield, how much loss, and how much nitrogen per bushel of grain, but the total requirement to make the plant and the grain. And we can figure these things out. It's hard to predict on a day-to-day basis, mostly that loss and, and the yield potential because of weather. Mm-hmm. But, but he said, and, and so that paper, no one ever talks about what I think is the most important part of that paper in 1965. At that time, you either have mechanistic models or you have empirical models. At that time, everything was empirical, which is what MRTN is. I'm going to mm-hmm. go to 100 fields this year. I'm going to put out 20 nitrogen rates, and one is going to optimize yield. And then I'm going to take that average across all those fields, and that average is 180 pounds of nitrogen per acre. So on average, in the state of Kentucky, I need 180 pounds of nitrogen. That is an empirical recommendation. And Stanford said, we will never advance the precision of our nitrogen recommendation unless we start looking at the mechanisms of requirement. And now we can split out, like we can split out yield into different things. I mean, you can start making that equation really complicated. But my one piece of advice to the farmer or the agronomist or the CCA is to think about nitrogen mechanistically. Understand the nitrogen cycle. And and if you want to dial in your nitrogen management, 
again, timing is the big lever, right? Like that's where I can get the most advantage for my, my client or my farm is by adjusting the timing to match crop need because nitrogen is so mobile. So, so we think about that mechanism of timing. Up until V6, a 200 bushel crop probably only needs about 20 pounds of nitrogen. So I only need 20 to get to V6. I don't know what's going to happen or what the weather's going to be. So I'm going to put 75 down to just make sure I get there, right? Because mm -hmm. it's cool <laughs> in the spring. There's not as much loss. So I'm starting to think about these mechanisms. Mm -hmm. When it's warmer, you know, there's greater, faster mineralization, more loss, ammonia volatilization. And, and so I'm going to say, okay, I need, I need 20 pounds to get to, to V6. I'm going to go 75. And now I'm going to think about what I've got left, right? And, um, and that's where I'm going to start. And then we say, what was my crop rotation? What does that do? Did I have a rye cover crop? Well, I got to overcome that carbon penalty. Did I have mm -hmm. soybeans before? Okay, I can cut back a little bit because that residue. So my advice is, one, real simply, think about timing. Forget Y drops. They're great. Spend money on them if you want to. <laughs> if you're just saying, how do I side dress? Take your sprayer. Get some nozzles. Talk to an engineer about nozzles. <laughs> put a piece of hose on there, a piece of hydraulic hose slide a piece of PVC over it so it's not flopping all over the place and just drag a piece of hydraulic hose through the field and, and you know, dribble on that side dress. Start at V4 when that corn's about 12 inches tall and hopefully you cover all your acres by V10 when you can't get through the corn without knocking the tops <laughs> off, right? Right. I mean, it's simple. Mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes we make things too complicated, but that's, that's my simple advice. Start split applying and then start thinking about the mechanism. Thank you so much to Dr. Josh McGrath for joining us today on the FarmVids podcast. And it was so fun to talk about nitrogen management, specifically sensor-based nitrogen management, since that's what both of our research is in. And I think my favorite part was talking about when it comes to nitrogen management or nutrient management in general, about how sometimes it's these bigger ideas, and he mentioned timing a lot. It's those bigger controls that mean a lot more than we're trying to fine tune some things and we yeah. have to be sure we're taking care of the big things first. It almost makes you think about Terry Griffin, right? If, mm -hmm. if you can't get the, the regular stuff right, precision ag is not gonna do anything for you. Exactly. Um, and, and I thought that was, another thing that was really interesting is Josh kind of brought up the idea that your user has to be comfortable and has to trust the system. And I think that's huge. I mean, yep. it's a really big challenge with, with proximal sensors and on the go sensing, but just in general, with any sort of technology out there, you have to build that trust with your users that are gonna be implementing it on the field. 100%. So uh, that was a really good episode. Really excited to talk about this type of technology. Uh, and next week, we're actually going to flip the script. Uh, Sam and I are gonna be on the other <laughs> side of the mics. Uh, I hope you'll be around for next week as we dive into remote sensing and a little more on proximal sensing mm -hmm. with nitrogen management. See you next week. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email, on Twitter, or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes. We'd like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast and their commitment to providing high quality informational material to the members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect reviews of Nebraska Extension or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. 
We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits.